Prime Minister has this evening made it clear that the country will move into a state of lockdown. You must stay at home. Stay at home. Dear friends at Kingsgate, it really is a joy to be with you, however strange these days and wherever it is that you find yourselves at this precise moment. We've been locked down on a farm in the West Country for more weeks than I care to count. However, as we all began to settle in in the early days into our new routines and our restrictions, we were walking the fields with the grandchildren, socially distanced and trying to explain why. I suggested to one of them that were we six feet apart or six miles, six countries, six continents, or indeed six galaxies, we would still love each other just the same. She went a bit quiet, thought for a moment about this slightly challenging concept, and replied, I see. Separated, but not divided. I thought that was pretty profound for a four-year-old, and I, of course, was incredibly proud of her and made a mental note to put her in for a Nobel Prize in the years to come. Separated but not divided. As much as I feel about all of you, friends and Kingsgate, it makes opportunities like this particularly welcome. And it's true to say, isn't it, that all of us are trying to learn lessons from lockdown. And they have been wonderfully demonstrated for us in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and I know you've been looking at it together over the past week or two. My lines have fallen in a very pleasant place, as the psalmist might sing, because I've landed in chapter three, which is a towering chapter indeed. And essentially we find the Apostle Paul here reviewing his life and assessing his priorities. And given that time is short, I'm going to give you the punchline, the spoiler first, which is quite simply this, in verse 10 of chapter three. I want to know Christ, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And I don't think it's stretching things to suggest that, like Paul, many of us have been reviewing our lives, even our priorities, during the course of the last few many interminable, never-ending weeks. Some people have been working atypically hard, but for many others, time has been on their side, and the pace of life has definitely been a bit slower. And don't you think that most of us, at our best and on a good day, would want to land with Paul, I want to know Christ and experience that incredible life-saving power. I think that's how I went into lockdown. It's certainly how I long to emerge from it. And I even think that I would still long for it, even if we had to start all over again, perish the thought and heaven preserve us. During the Reformation, John Calvin, the reformer, working in Geneva, he said this, I give thee all and keep back nothing for myself. Count Zinzendorf, who of course founded the Moravians in the 1700s, he said, I have but one passion, which is Jesus, Jesus only. And so with that in mind, I want to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. We're going to go quite a lick. 
And I'm going to suggest that I don't know how you do these things. The words may be on a screen or indeed you may have your physical Bible with you or some sort of a device, whatever it is. If you can follow along, that's great. And we're going to read, as I say, at quite some speed, the first 14 verses. I actually have a physical Bible because I love it. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God, we're the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more, he says. I love him. I was circumcised when I was eight eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now, he says, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I haven't achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and to receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Pretty fabulous, isn't it? It's amazing. So I'd like to suggest that Paul's first priority, it's hard to argue with and quite difficult to do, rejoice in the Lord. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, whatever, in today's parlance, is one of the most infuriating words of all time. It feels to me like the sort of height of lazy talk, essentially slightly dismissive. But honestly, that's not so here. It's a weighty, considered word. Dennis Potter was an English playwright years ago, and he once said, the trouble with words, you never know where they've been. And this is one of those. Because here Paul is saying, whatever the circumstances, through thick and thin, for better or worse, in lockdown or out of it, whether imprisoned in Rome or walking the streets with his dear friends in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters, he says, I never get tired of telling you these things. And it's a very sweet insight into Paul. I think Paul is amazing. He loves his friends. His affections run very deep. It's so human. It's so immediate. It's very engaging, I think. I can't tell you enough, he says. You need to understand. 
Rejoicing in the Lord is key. And let's be honest, many of us are being pretty squeezed at the moment. Toothpaste tubes nearing the end of their contents. Say you're really discouraged. Maybe your job is at stake, and many are. Maybe your marriage is under real strain and you wouldn't be the only ones. Maybe your children are driving you nuts and you'd be part of a growing club. Maybe your finances, your mortgage, your debt levels are severely threatened and my goodness, you're not alone. Maybe you've been bereaved and you're going through deep grief on your own account or on behalf of other people that you love and know and love. Maybe you're just plain frightened. Frightened of recession or of another spike or of some of the bleak things we're daily being warned about. There is no way that these are not really difficult days and unusually demanding times. But consider again, if you will, the humble toothpaste tube. When squeezed, what comes out? What comes out of a person under pressure? Grumbling and complaining can feature pretty quickly. And it's easy to descend into self-pity. But Paul is saying here that there's something very fundamental to being able to deal with discouragement or self-pity, and that is to rejoice in the Lord. He even says, I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith, to help to hold you fast. Now, to rejoice may seem a little counterintuitive. It takes practice, and it needs to become our habit our resort, our default. He says we need something in our lives more compelling than discouragement, more compelling than the habit of self-pity and self-absorption, something more compelling, more thrilling, and it has to be Jesus. Has to be. Zinzendorf again, remember? I have but one passion, which is Jesus. Jesus only. To rejoice in the Lord, to worship and enjoy his presence, is the way to ward off disheartenment, to restore perspective, to realign one's priorities. And it is, of course, one of the major weapons in spiritual warfare. The Old Testament is often a physical picture of a spiritual reality. So consider the way that the Israelites went into battle. Very often, God instructed them to put the Levites, or the worship leaders, out in front of the army and told them to begin to worship him. And then the people followed suit and the enemy was routed, as in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. Jehoshaphat, the king, said, Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. And might I just suggest that's one of the key things that I've been looking at in the last little while. Believe in the Lord your God, which I do, and you do. And you will be able to stand firm, which I do believe. And then Jehoshaphat, after consulting the people, appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. And what was true of Chronicles 2020? Forgive me if I seem a little fanciful. Might it not be quite as true for the church in 2020? And so the first priority, Paul suggests, is to rejoice in the Lord. And the second is this, recognize the real thing. Paul is arguing for the priceless reality of knowing Christ, insisting that outward religion is empty and ineffective, but following Jesus is the real thing. 
He uses his own story, not as a boast, but as a warning. It's profound and his argument is powerful because it is so personal. He's pretty vitriolic on the subject of the Judaizers, those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, who preached external religion, the keeping of rules, who say you must be circumcised to be saved. They were talking about externalised religion, with its superficiality and its rote, and that's dangerous and deadly. Hundreds of years before, Isaiah had written, these words, quoting, of course, the word of the Lord, these people say they are mine, they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Jesus himself quoted Isaiah when he said, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. Pretty strong stuff. So probably best avoided. Instead, Paul says, consider the real thing. Recognise the real thing. Did you know that in the States... During their training to tackle counterfeit currency, FBI agents were sent to the U.S. Treasury. And to their surprise, they spent the vast majority of their time studying genuine dollar bills. In the greatest of detail, the paper, the ink, the watermarks and so on, and very little time examining forgeries. When the trainee agents asked why, their instructor explained, the more you get to know the real thing, the more easily you'll recognise a fake. And Paul gives us three marks of those who belong to God, three marks of the real thing, be they Jews or Gentiles, marks which are not physical symbols, not fake, but the real thing. They worship God in the spirit. Verse 3, chapter 3, we who worship by the spirit of God. Again in that verse, they rely on Jesus alone. We rely on Christ Jesus and what he has done for us. Another translation talks about glorying in Christ Jesus, which involves, I think, talking about him, boasting about him. Do you know what he can do? Have you any idea of the difference he's made in my life? How much he's helping me through this weird time? And then thirdly, they don't put their confidence in themselves. We put no confidence in human efforts, says Paul in verse 4. Though, and then he goes on to say, I could if anyone could. I do love it. And then he goes on to catalogue his own qualifications, a seemingly glittering success story, but not to boast or to show off, but by way of a cautionary tale, an expose of the fake, if you like. His CV is amazing. Circumcised like every little Jewish boy, descended from Benjamin, Israel's golden boy, a real Hebrew if ever there was one, not an assimilated Jew, a cultural Jew, a Greek Jew, a real Jew, a Pharisee, and they didn't come more educated or strict in their obedience and so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. Zeal, commitment, can be very impressive, focused, single-minded, even fanatical. When I became a Christian, once and for all, uh, my parents, who were God-fearing, church-going, sweet people, but how I became a Christian was a little bit over the top for them. And my father once exasperatedly said to my mother, Ellen has just become fanatical. I took it to be rather a compliment, actually. As for righteousness, says Paul, I obey the law without fault. And he finishes off this catalogue with, I once thought these things were valuable. And then he says, but now. One of those wonderful but moments in the New Testament. But now. And with this single word, everything in this glorious chapter is turned on its head. Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul. Recognise the real thing. 
And thirdly, resolve to know Christ. Verses 7 and 8. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In fact, he says, I counted all as garbage, which is an incredibly weak word, actually. The New Testament is far more earthy, and Paul hugely so. He's talking about raw sewage, dung, muck, human excrement. There are Anglo-Saxon words. Honestly, that's what he means here, and that's the weight of the original word. Jim Packer, who was an amazing commentator on the scriptures, and he wrote this about this little bit. He said, when Paul says he counts all that he has lost as dung, he means not merely that he doesn't think of them as having any value at all, but also that he doesn't live with them constantly on his mind. And he goes on and says this, what normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? Fair point. You see, Paul is using the language of accountancy here, which will gladden the hearts of some of you who may be accountants. And in effect, he's saying this. When I put together all the things in my life that were successes, I used to write them in the assets column as valuable and gains. I wrote down my education as an asset, my family background as an asset, my ability to work hard as an asset, my level of commitment. All those things were assets until I met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And in a shattering moment, everything that was in the assets column in my life became in my mind a liability, a loss. Now, of course, of course, Paul is not down on success. He isn't writing off wealth or education or family or a great job or working hard or studying, serving hard. Of course he isn't. He's quite simply saying, Everything else is worthless compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's all a case of priorities. It's a perspective. You will probably have heard of Jim Elliot. He was a missionary to the previously unreached Alca tribe in Ecuador, and he was martyred there in 1956. And he famously said this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think it's fantastic. Words of one syllable, people. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it's as if Paul is saying to his friends in Philippi, today I'm not going to rely on or rest on my accomplishments or my merits or anything else. Anything that dulls me to my need for Jesus, that detracts from how wonderful he is to me or distracts me from knowing him more and better. To know him is all that matters to me. And look at the fabulous words that this passage closes with. Verse 12, 13, 14. I press on to possess, forgetting the past, be it glittering or disgraceful, it matters not. Looking forward to what lies ahead, pressing on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. You'll remember that in chapter 1 and verse 21, he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's a win-win. So may I encourage you to take Paul as your great model, to rejoice in the Lord through thick and thin, to recognize the real thing, to resolve to know Christ. And I want to finish with the words of an African martyr on the eve of his execution, which I discovered again recently. He wrote this, he said, 
I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. My face is set. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. But my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. Listen to this. I will not give up, shut up or let up until I have stayed up, prayed up and paid up for the cause of Christ. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till everyone knows, work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me because my banner will have been unfurled. Wonderful stuff. And so as we close, I would love, if I may, to pray for you and to invite the Spirit of God to come upon you. Oldest prayer of the Christian church and applicable whoever you are and wherever you find yourself. And the Spirit of God is not mocked. He's not being confounded by coronavirus. The Lord has not been caught out. He hasn't taken his eye off the ball. He's not lost the plot. He knows just what's going on. And the truth is that there's probably never been a time historically when more people have heard about the gospel of Jesus. More people have been able to call on the Holy Spirit to come and to touch them. So let's join all those people right now. And let me remind you the words of Jesus. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? So come, Holy Spirit. We're asking you in this moment to come and to bless your people profoundly. Steady our nerve. Strengthen our arm in the Lord. Help us to believe in the Lord our God and to know that we will be able to stand firm. And let me encourage you, if you have some sort of affliction that is worrying you, even at this moment, if you have a cracking headache, if your eyes are blurry, lots of people have done a lot of screen time, if you've got aching joints, your skin is struggling, you know, sort of unpleasant, dried out, all the hands washing and stuff, all sorts of little things, little things that are very irksome. The Lord is interested and able to deal with these things. If your levels of anxiety and strain are higher than you know they should be, your mental health is feeling under attack, come to the Lord in this moment and ask him to touch you. And wherever you are, whether you are with other people or on your own, You can lay a hand on yourself, on any part of you that you feel is relevant, on your heart if you're feeling wobbly, and invite the Spirit. Lord, come. Precious Holy Spirit, come. Bless your people. Strengthen your church. Steady our nerve. And may we, like Paul, rejoice through thick and thin. Recognize the reality that Jesus is. And resolve to know him even more. And as we're praying, just in this very last moment, I suspect there are people out there who've heard me talking and who might be saying to themselves, you know, I'm not sure I do know Jesus quite like that. Your heart may be pounding. You may be feeling, what's going on with me? This is something that is a poignancy in me. I want more of this stuff. Well, I would like to invite you to sign up, to buy in, to join the Lord, to join his people to invite him to come into your life and be a part of your future forever. 
for me to live as Christ and to die as King. And let me pray like that for you. And I'm going to pray in the first person. And I don't know who you are, and you and I will probably never know. But let me invite you in this moment to pray with me and say amen at the end if you'd like to. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for who you are and what I'm hearing of you. I thank you that you really are the way, the truth, and the life. I thank you that I'm beginning to realize that. I thank you that you died for me to deal with my sins and my shortcomings so that I can forget my past and turn my face to the future. I can be forgiven and set free. And I ask you now to come into my life and to be with me forever. Amen and amen.